Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Let's get right to it. I have a link to this story on my Twitter account if you follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Some choices only look bad in hindsight you think okay well this is you know i got to make a decision which way do i go and then you know you make that decision and then you say yeah that really didn't work out right some decisions however are obviously staggeringly stupid at the time they were made and we start the program with one of those staggeringly stupid decisions and this was when a few years ago surrendering to political correctness MPS made the decision to get rid of police officers in their schools. Went back and I, I kind of pulled some of this out because what, what happened was you had in, in 2016 is where school resource officers were, were told they were kind of like no longer welcome. And then a couple for a couple years after that, there was a deal with MPS where the police would like patrol outside the schools, like after the schools ended, and, and that ended up getting killed a- as well. So the police presence was removed. I have in my hands some of the news coverage back from a couple years ago when the decision to completely cut ties with uh, police and MPS were were made. And it's kind of interesting to see some of the, the conversations. This is the way one of the local news stations carry this. Um, a rally calling for police to be removed from Milwaukee schools drew hundreds of people Wednesday, June 17th. Students led the effort. Many of them said, now this is from a couple years ago, Many of them said they would feel safer if police were out of schools. This is a great cause to get MPD out of MPS, said Chris, a student in Milwaukee taking part of the rally. We don't need police at our school. There's no need to have police officers influencing us into going to the school to prison pipeline. The fact that police brutality is happening in schools is very wrong because it's a place for education, said Johnny, a fellow student who spoke at the rally. While the police are supposed to make students feel safer, the students we talked to said the interactions they've had made them feel less safe. All right, here's one of the other stories about this. This is the way W uh, Wisconsin Public Radio reported it. More than two dozen members of the public called in to support their su- express their support for a resolution calling for the school board to unanimously terminate its contract with the Milwaukee Police Department. Um, the board members said they received nearly 800 written messages about the planned vote. We've had enough research to know what a majority of our students, our students of color, are not treated with respect by the system, said board member Paula Phillips. Director Sequana Taylor, the other board member who drafted the resolution, agreed. If we're going to address and have our students ready for success, we need to have them in an environment that is successful. I've heard from many students that having police inside the schools, working within the schools, does not create a positive environment. 
Now, of course, this is coming all in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. Here's one of the students, maybe the same one I quoted earlier. All the hype that's built up to this, it's our time now. It's time to get them, that would be the police, up and out of here. The world is seeing why we don't need police in our schools. The world is seeing why we don't need police up in our schools. And so that's, of course, what the Milwaukee School Board did They terminated the contract. They got the police out of the schools. Well, not really, because the police are back in the schools in a big way. The Badger Institute has a a new piece, and they've been all over this for the last several months. But like I said, I've got a link to their story. If you follow me um, on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. All right, here's the headline. Calls to police from MPS high schools up dramatically again. Um, let's see. Fall semester, 34 MPS high schools made more than 778 calls for police service. That's 21.2% more than the 642 calls last spring and 16.5% more than the 668 made in the fall of 2021, according to police data. Schools made 68 reports of battery this past fall compared to just over 100 for the entire school year. 36 reports of a subject with a gun, compared to 39 for the whole previous school year, and 25 reports of sexual assault, compared to 39 for all of last year, according to the data. The numbers go on. Let's see. Um, Okay, back in August, the Badger Institute reported that at the time that MPD responded to 1,310 calls from MPS high schools, an average of 7.2 calls every school day for 2021-2022. And there's nothing that has suggested that has changed. Marshall High School called Milwaukee officers 83 times last semester, more than any other high school. Marshall officials also called police more than any other school in 2021-2022. Pulaski High School made 73 calls in the fall semester, roughly the same number made for the entire 2021-2022 school year. North Washington, Vincent, and Madison High Schools continue to be among the worst schools in need of police services. Bradley Technical High School School with 34 calls and Hamilton High School with 32 were less disruptive than they were the last um, school year. School officials reported 192 incidents of trouble with the juvenile or subject, by far the most frequent call. Reckless vehicle reports, they did drop slightly. Um, Of the 778 calls last semester, investigating officers arrested 25 students, 18 or older, and 20 students, 17 or younger. Another 23 were removed from emergency detention. Officers also issued 62 city citations this past fall, according to the data. So let's cut through this. This idea that we were going to get the cops out of the schools a few years ago because we don't need those cops in the schools. Well, it didn't work because even if you don't have school resource officers, you've got cops getting called to those schools on an almost daily basis because of out of control kids. And these kids who say, well, we don't need those police, they're an occupying force, guess you look at the numbers and you determine you do need these cops. 
which is why, again, the Badger Institute quotes a spokesperson for Cavalier Johnson, the mayor, as saying, huh, it's likely that Milwaukee police officers will have a renewed presence in some Milwaukee public schools in 2023. And should they follow through, it would be the first time officers have been posted in schools since 2016. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Old National Bank talk and text line. Let us tee this up. Again, in the decision, at least in my opinion, in the scope of staggeringly stupid decisions, getting school resources officers out of the school was a dramatically dumb idea. This idea that we don't need the cops around because, well, they're an occupying force and that the students aren't going to be able to learn and there's this uh, uh, school-to-prison pipeline. No, you need the cops there. Why? Because the students are incapable, in some cases, of conforming themselves to the requirements of the law and the teachers can't deal with them. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I believe that school resource officers should be back in most, if not every one, of those MPS schools. And the people that made the decision to pull them out, well, they should be at least acknowledging the egg that they have on their face. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. If you're just tuning in, in in, in a bid for political correctness, there, over the last few years, there's just been a, there was a move to get the police out of the schools. And you have some of these politically correct, woke politicians who viewed the cops as like an occupying force. And what happened is they used the, the George Floyd case as an example. This is why we need those cops out of the school. Well, you know what? It hasn't worked. Badger Institute has this new report. You've got the cops coming on an almost daily basis to one or another school making arrests because... What's happening is the school administrators and officials cannot control the criminal activity that's going on in the schools, which is now causing the mayor to say, well, you know, we've got to take a look at this. And my guess is next semester we're going to have to have cops back in some, if not all, of the schools. 855-616-1620. They should never have been removed from the schools. The people who came up with this harebrained idea, giving in to the wishes of the students, they should have known better. And this is what happens when you let political correctness trump common sense. Eric and Racine. Eric, you're first on WTMJ. Hey, Jess. It's been a while since I've called in. And wow, I, I have a great idea. How about we jump out of a plane without a parachute? That that uh that equals about the same as what uh, they did a few years back. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah exactly. That's, because that's right, true. Eric, because you because you know, we don't like gravity. No, thanks for call. We we don't we don't need thanks for call. We don't need to be bound by those rules of gravity. We don't need what a what a stupid thing to say when you think about. It. We don't need those police in the school. Well, well, yes. Yes, you do. And if you look at the, these numbers, 778 calls for police service divided out of 34 MPS high schools. Now, it might not be all of them, but it's a good number of them. Explain any reason at all why Marshall High School and Pulaski High School and North and Washington and Vincent and Madison um, that are making constant and continuous calls for police service. Explain to me what the thinking is, why you don't have school resources officers 
in there. Jeff, I taught for 30 years. Trust me, if the kids want it, it's probably not a very good idea. Jeff, the city of Milwaukee, here's a real interesting text, just passed a, nu- passed a nuisance ordinance about 10 years ago. If there were more than three calls to any particular address in a 30-day period, the proper w- property would be declared a nuisance. Why are these schools not declared a nuisance? Well, that's kind of an interesting point when the police are there all the time. But again, I love the irony. We don't need the police here. Well, yeah, apparently you do, because when the police aren't there, there's still the criminal activity that's going on. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Of course you needed the police there. They should have never been taken out. And what you need is... We really need to go back to like 2015. You need to have school resource officers in the school, number one, so they're there for an early response. And then what you also need to do is you need to have the police patrols resume outside the schools. Why wait until the – because at least if there's the police patrols, maybe you've got a possibility of deterrence. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, 855-616-1620, Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? You're absolutely correct. Um, you know, Chicago, um, it's done by each council, um, you know, and that's sort of like within the districts. Um, and most of them, I shouldn't say most of them, but a lot, even though that George Floyd wave made a lot of them say, we don't want the cops in school, they're bringing them back because of the problems it creates without having them. As you said, some of these cops are going to the same schools every day almost. And obviously if they're on site, it's much more likely they're going to be able to control the situation. Well, yeah, exactly. Thanks for the call, Mike. Plus, you know, one of the things that I I think it it got lost in the – again, the the political correctness and the the folks out there that took the George Floyd tragedy – and there, there was a certain segment of the, the anti-police element out there that wanted to use this to advance their own various political agendas here. I have always maintained that having school resources officers is a good thing, not only because of the early response and the deterrent and stuff like that, but also I think it helps personalize the police. In other words, you, you have somebody who... All right, you, you have a you have a kid, whether it's a middle schooler or a high school kid, who gets to see the police officers in a situation other than when they're they're getting you know stopped for for speeding or, or something like that. It, it's in a different sort of role, and you can sit. Maybe you get the idea that you know a lot of these police officers, the vast majority of police officers, are pretty decent people. And it helps you personalize this. And so instead of simply saying, oh, all the cops are occupying an occupying force, you say, well, gee, I I know, you know, um, Officer, you know, Officer Frank or Officer Sally, who I I remember from high school. And she was pretty nice uh, and he was pretty nice. And boy, they had a really tough job because, you know, I had some people I went to school with that were, you know, really you know, really bad people, and they actually help try to keep them under control. Jeff, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you ask the kids if they want cops there, of course they'll say no, because they know they can't get away with stuff so easily. Um, yeah, duh. I mean, you know, duh. <laughs> I, I think, you know, that's one of these kind of self-evident things that are there. 
Jeff, I graduated from James Madison High School in 1978. Loved my high school. It was multiracial, safe, and a great and fun place to learn. It gives me great sadness to know that my alma mater needs police in the school, but I know it is extremely necessary. Not only is that necessary, but parental involvement in these teens' lives is the only way to steer these kids right and make police presence at the schools a thing of the past. Okay, so that's that was it. The argument was few years ago we don't need the police they are a net detriment because the kids somehow can't learn because there is a resource officer stationed at the school that was the thinking it was a staggeringly stupid argument at the time it never made any sense but now we have the data in we know that it didn't work we know that taking resources, police resources, out of the schools hasn't eliminated the need for cops. And if anything, again, it's getting worse. These numbers are staggering. 778 calls for police service among 34 high schools. And again, you look at the Marshall High School 83 times last semester. So, I mean, that's... That's probably, I mean, I assume that that's going to be about an average. And this is where you, this isn't where you have a disciplinary action, mind you. This is where something is going on that is so bad, you have to call the police. And I guess that's at least one out of every two days, right? Um, Same thing pretty much true for Pulaski High School. But the mayor, at least, to his credit, the mayor at least is recognizing, I think, that, hey, this is something that, that happened under the previous administration and, you know, we, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you look at these raw numbers and, yeah, we need the cops back. And you need them back sooner rather than later. And if the kids don't like it, life is tough, get a helmet. And if some of the political activists don't like it, too bad. You're not doing anybody any favors. This text kind of sums this whole thing up. Jeff, what spineless, naive adults allowed the students to decide if police should be in the schools or not? My husband works with the difficult, unruly kids in a grade school, and it's absolutely ridiculous how the staff has to bend over backwards to accommodate these kids who are not there to learn but to be babysat so their parents could have a break. That's a fact. Yeah, well, this idea that let's get the we don't want those cops in the school because it's going to interfere with the police with the kids learning didn't really work out that way because I don't know the disruptive kids are causing the schools to call the cops on a regular basis anyways no surprise Anytime we can get some Jim Croce on this program, I absolutely love it. Hey, um, Mike Spalding was just talking about this stock market. It's been pretty much in a meltdown for all of February. January was pretty good because I think investors were thinking, okay, maybe the worst of inflation is behind us. But now um, uh, I think there is a concern that the economy is still too hot and the Federal Reserve might continue to monkey with interest rates. And so, um, again, an ongoing decline. The Dow Jones down 622 points. That's 1.84% as we speak. The NASDAQ down 2.8%. Uh, almost 2.2 percent. That's uh, down 257 points. So uh, the the February slide following an awful 2022 
uh, continues. So hopefully, hopefully investors will figure out maybe the Federal Reserve knows what it's doing. Uh, two, two final um, texts that came in you know, during the break that I wanted to share on our last topic that, that I think are both extremely interesting. One is, Jeff, I have kids in the city of South Milwaukee schools, which has police in schools. My kids feel safer when one of the officers is on the premises, and the kids are able to build a relationship with these officers before there's a problem, and I'm pretty sure it is preventing some problems. That, of course, makes sense to me, but it's really the the tale of kind of two cities, because South Milwaukee has that. Here's another text. Jeff, I'm an itinerant teacher. I get to go to many of the schools that you were mentioning in the MPS system. Pulaski is one school that previously had a police liaison with support from the very near police if needed. The police built relationships and were a positive presence. As a current MPS teacher, I would love to have that back. Yeah, now don't ask don't ask necessarily the, the president of the teachers union or anything like that because they – I mean, there's different political fish to fry. But my guess is you talk to rank-and-file teachers and you say, gee, would you rather have a school liaison officer and would you rather have police presence in the schools or not? My guess is 95% of the teachers are going to say, well, of course we want the police presence in the school. Don't you understand what goes on on a daily basis? And obviously the answer would be members of the school board either don't understand that or don't care about it because it doesn't fit their agenda. Okay, I mentioned this. We did not open up the phone lines on it yesterday, but I've gotten a ton of feedback since then. I have some very dear friends who who live in Wauwatosa, and we were talking a couple weeks ago, and, and my question was, what the hell happened to Wauwatosa? I mean, seriously, how t- Wauwatosa used to be a... a reasonable, uh, a semi-conservative sort of community, and now you've got problems at, at the schools, you know, you've got fights at the schools that are going on, you have a school board that it seems that from time to time has completely and totally lost its mind, you've got at least a certain segment of the community that's decided the police are our enemies, and things like that. I mean, what, what's going on in Wauwatosa? And, you know, my, my friends just kind of shrugged and said, well, I, I don't know. I think we got some of the people from Milwaukee that are moving into Wauwatosa. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know that that's what's going on. But, you know, Wauwatosa and the people that live there in many cases are their own worst enemies. So here's, here is the story. And this has been going on for a couple years. Developer John Vassalo had been wanting to take the property that was – um, on the corner of West Blue Mound Road and North Mayfair Road. Kind of, if you can picture that, you know, a, a busy sort of, of intersection kind of out by the, the zoo and things like that, if, if you can picture that. So North Mayfair Road, think Highway 100, and then think West Blue Mound Road. So on this corner, originally what he wanted to do is he wanted to put up a 25-story tower with 354 units. And what the tower would do is the tower would have office space and some retail, and it would have apartments. Well, okay, so the, the neighbors the neighbors started to complain, oh, this is going to affect traffic, and what's going to happen is it's going to throw shadows, which are going to you know, impact, you know, when the sun is at certain points in the day, it's going to throw shadows, which might impact on some of the houses that are there. So the developer says, okay, and, and by the way, this was going to be about $50 million. 
okay, it would increase the tax base by about $50 million, not to mention the construction and all the stuff that would be there. So the developer says, okay, look, I, I, don't, want, I don't want this fight. Here's what we'll do. 20-story, 340-unit tower. All right? Well, all right, there was objections to that. And it became clear that the Common Council wasn't going to sign off on a zoning change, so he withdrew that application in February of 2021. All right. So the developer comes back and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. In November of 2021, they float this idea. Here's what we'll do. 28-story, 65-unit building. So nowhere near the density of what we were talking about before. We'll put in bigger apartments and things like that. Larger apartments will have eight floors of office space. And by doing this, reducing the number of apartments, the proposal complied with the city's zoning code for the site. So you didn't have to go through the Common Council. All right. You did have to go through the Board of Zoning Appeals. Um, but but this tower, they were calling it Drew Tower, it, it got the approval. So, okay, looks like we're, we're set here. And again, this is going to increase the tax base by $50 million. Well, what happens is that a group of residents, the, these folks who had been fighting this from the beginning, they didn't like any of these things. So they turn around and they sue the Board of Zoning Appeals in July saying, Okay, you you violated your rules. You know, they've you know, they were winning before, but you violated your rules. That suit is pending in Milwaukee County Circuit Court. So this has been going on. This guy wanted to take his private money, wanted to build this tower, wanted to contribute to the tax base. But you've had politicians that haven't really gotten behind him. And you've got these neighbors that have been complaining. So what's happened to the economy over the last couple of years? Well, you know, if you were looking to build or buy something back in 2019 or, or 2020, one of the things that you had as an advantage was you had a low interest rate environment. You know, you could get loans and finance stuff for about 3%. Now that that cost has gone up to 7%. So it's really become prohibitive. And when you're looking at a project that's going to be tens of millions of dollars, the difference in the interest you've got to pay of 3% versus 7% it is staggering. So the developer has now bailed on the office towers. It's like, okay, you you know, you've been fighting me for a couple years, can't get this through, so here's what we're going to do. Forget the office tower. We're going to put up a Tommy's Express car wash, which is part of a chain based out of Holland, Michigan. The mayor, Dennis McBride, who never expressed support for the office building, now he wants to jump into this. He says, well, a car wash isn't what the city needs. What we're hoping for generally in Wauwatosa is balanced development projects where we seek the best and highest uses for our property. But a car wash is certainly not that. <laughs> oh, Okay. He goes on to say the property tax base is important because it pays for important community services like police and fire protection, falling snow, and picking up garbage. Those are the sort of things we are concerned with at City Hall. So the mayor is saying, well, I, I, I mean, a car wash. We, this, this, we don't need a car wash there. You know, we need, well, we need a $50 million, you know, multi-use tower. But the mayor, of course, wasn't anywhere around supporting this over the last couple of years. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank uh, talk and text line. This, this is one of these kind of infuriating stories where I, 
again, you, you just want to say, what did you think was going to happen? You have this developer who has come back with multiple proposals to try to get something which would be a huge benefit to the community. You get some of these folks out there, and I... I mean, I've gotten texts, and I think when we've talked about this in the past, I've gotten a couple of people from the group to call and say, oh, we're not against this. We just don't like this or don't like that or the other. All right, here, here's the problem. You, you cannot have it both ways. You fight the office tower that's going to contribute $50 million, you know, to your tax base. You fight it, you fight it, you fight it. Finally, the developer says, okay, to heck with this, and you get a car wash. Okay, so my question is, in Wauwatosa, are you better off with the car wash or would you have been better off with this $50 million multi-use office building? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment. One of our texters says, I assume you're asking a rhetorical question. Is the city better off with a, a car wash or a, a $50 million multi-use facility that's going to bring in well, as planned, it would have, I think, bring, brought in some like high, relatively high-end tenants and contributed to the tax base. But it's a rhetorical question. Well, we'll know because that's the decision that Wauwatosa ended up making by jerking the developer around for three or four years. Oh, you know, we'd, it's going to throw off shadows. Oh, it's going to increase the congestion. I mean, it's, okay, look, here's the deal. It's Blue Mound Road and Mayfair Road. It's already a busy sort of intersection that's there. Jeff, I don't live in Watosa, but if I did, I would be for this apartment complex that they wanted to build in the first place. Number one, when you can add $50 million to the tax base, it's a win-win. Plus, there would be adults living there, so you're not adding students to the school system where you have additional costs to the schools, but you're reaping the benefits of the taxes going to the schools and into the city for their services. Um, yeah, Jeff, you don't definitely don't need another car wash there. Um, Coast is down the road by the old Sam's Club. That mobile just north of this corner has one. 84th and Blue Mount has one. The property is right by the freeway. It would have brought in needed revenue with taxes and rent to the area, but instead it will go belly up two years after it's built. Might as well just keep it the vacant, weeded lot that it currently is. Well, see, that's that was the other thing. I mean, that just... It makes your head want to explode. You, you've got a essentially a vacant lot. I think there used to be a pizza place that was on there. But you, you've got this, this vacant lot that has been vacant for a while. You have a developer that's willing to come in and say, look, I'm – I'm willing to make this huge investment in this community, and this is going to increase your tax base by $50 million. And the staggering thing about the story I shared with you is is the mayor, he, he, he didn't come out and support it because he didn't want to upset some of these neighbors that live in that immediate area that, oh, gosh, it's going to bring a few more cars that are going to be in the area, and it's going to throw shadows and stuff like that. Well, okay, that's that's part of the thing. I mean, at some point in time, if you're going to live in a neighborhood off a major intersection where there is commercial development, you've got to figure that that's going to happen from time to time. Jeff, I live on 115th and Blue Mount. I never understood why my neighbors were so concerned with a high rise on Blue Mount. The last thing we need is a car wash. There's already a car wash on Moreland and Blue Mount and Highway 100 and Greenfield and 84th and Blue Mount. I can throw a rock from my house and probably hit a car wash. Jeff, I hope all those folks that were opposing this enjoy the noisier traffic line induced by the car wash. 
Um, well, yeah, I, I think that's it. Jeff, my parents live in Wauwatosa, right down the street from where this property is. The whole area is busy enough. If you don't live in the area, you can't speak on it. Well, yes, you can, because this is this is what happens when you allow the, what I would call the tyranny of the minority. You have a small group of people who decide that, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to create a lot of noise, and we're going to object to this, and then when... We, we make the developer change this policy and change that policy, and then once that we, we can't intimidate the politicians anymore, then we're going to try to just delay this by going into the courts. And you see this over and over again, and it worked. I mean, the NIMBYs won this. Those not-in-my-backyard folks, they, they won not necessarily because they were right. They won because they just outlasted everybody else. And in this particular case, the developer makes the business decision that, hey, his costs of building this project, the, the whole financial thing has dramatically changed. If we had been able to break ground back in, in 2020 and get the thing built or almost built by now, lock in his financing at 3% rates and stuff like that, well, then, you know, Wauwatosa would be would have this asset. But because it was allowed to be dragged out and there's this court case, it's pending in Milwaukee Circuit Court, so even if the neighbors lose, they can take it to appeal and they can take it to an appeal. And the bottom line is they, they can draw this out for another three or four years. So what happens is the private developer says, eh, okay, I, I've just I've got to move on. It doesn't make any financial sense. So the NIMBYs end up winning. But the big question is for the majority of people who live in Wauwatosa, you've now you've got the car wash, but you've lost the fifty million dollar multi use building. You've got you've lost the nice apartments, you've got the lost the eight floors of office space, you've got the car wash, or you're going to have the weeded lot. Okay. So who really wins in that equation? You know, the news just gets worse and worse for Columbia St. Mary's, now part of the Ascension Hospital System. And whenever I I start on these topics, I always have to do my disclaimer that I have a relationship with Freighter, one of their their competitors. We do the everyday health features and things like that. But what's going on, and there's been story after story after story about the quality of care at at Ascension Columbia St. Mary's, and it's just going downhill. And, you know, we've talked about that from from time to time at the various hospitals. And the the big question is becoming, you know, this is uh, what appears happened is Ascension was very proud of the fact that they could cut and cut and cut and cut and, and save money and increase the number of patients per nurse and things like that, and they could make money as the bottom line, and now it's pretty much that the chickens have come home to roost, to use the cliche. Now they're having a lot of trouble providing appropriate patient care. On top of all this, well, you have the latest story. Um, this comes from Columbia St. Mary's, the parking garage, Prospect and North Avenue. Now, a couple of years back, um, there was a huge story where a, a 53-year-old guy stabbed a woman nearly to death near uh, during a robbery in in the garage, in the parking garage. You know, and that goes back a couple of years. Well, the latest thing is apparently Saturday afternoon, someone broke into at least five cars at the Columbia St. Mary's parking garage on Prospect and North Avenue. Um, WISN Channel 12 has the story. At least uh, one member of the nursing staff told the news that her car was among those damaged, said, you know, this is a problem. That Apparently they, they have security there, but they don't have cameras 
in all the different places, and so nobody ended up seeing exactly what happened. They won't say um, whether there are cameras on every floor of the garage, and they won't say what the frequency of their security patrols were, but the bottom line is, you know, on top of everything else, now you have cars being broken into on a Saturday afternoon in the hospital's parking garage. At some point in time, whether it's quality of care or security of people who are going to see doctors or going to visit patients or whatever, you've got to step up. And again, the news just gets worse and worse and worse for Ascension in general and Columbia St. Mary's in particular. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Uh, just on what we were just talking about, the, the vandalism in the parking garage at Columbia St. Mary's, which is the last thing that that hospital needs. Jeff, having worked at uh, Columbia St. Mary's for many years, I can tell you that historically there are no cameras in the parking garage. There's also no security station in the parking garage. The garage was rarely patrolled by security. If, however, they've inst- been installed within the last year, cameras may exist. See, this is... This is just the challenge nowadays that's out there, and I speak to it from at least you know firsthand sort of experience. When we moved from our location at Capitol Drive, Capitol and Humboldt, which had an outdoor parking lot, but it was a secured lot. You needed a card key to get in. One of the concerns coming downtown to the, the avenue was was parking. And once people started coming into the avenue, credit where credit is due with regard to the people that run the parking lot. There is security. There is at least two uh, patrol people, security people, from 7 in the morning to 7 at night. They've, they've got, they patrol this. I, they've got dogs, for example. They're armed security people. And then from 7 at night to 7 in the morning, I, my understanding is I haven't been down there at those times, but my understanding is they hire off-duty uniform Milwaukee police officers to provide security. And I will tell you, in the time that we have been in the parking garage, I haven't heard, at least since I have been down there, I haven't heard any reports of of problems because they take security seriously. You need to take security seriously or else, quite candidly, people just aren't going to patronize your business or park there or whatever. Okay, let us completely and totally switch gears. I want to talk about the international story. Uh, today is February 21st. Yeah, it's the 21st. Um, February 21st, uh, February 24th of 2022. That, will, that was when Putin launched the invasion of Ukraine. Can you believe that it has almost been a year? In some respects, it's one of these stories that it seems like it's absolutely forever, and in other respects, it seems like it just happened yesterday. Clearly, Vladimir Putin misjudged what was going to happen. I think he felt that the Russian military was going to be able to storm into Ukraine, and this would be kind of like a German blitzkrieg. They would have, you know, that the the city would have fallen, the capital city of Kiev would have fallen, and uh, Russia would have been able to control the entire country. I think he also felt that the uh, Russians would be viewed as conquering heroes as opposed to invaders. He was wrong in that regard. He also, I think, calculated that the West, 
and I'm talking about the NATO countries, the West would not have opposed him, and even if there was some opposition, would not have been able to maintain a solidified block for very long. Putin's calculation with that was wrong. Matter of fact, Putin has miscalculated about pretty much everything in connection with the war. But it doesn't change the dynamic that one year in, one year minus three days in, we appear to be no closer to a resolution than we were a year ago. Now, the latest news is, see, Putin gave a speech yesterday and was it was very much a saber-rattling sort of speech. He said Moscow was going to suspend its participation in the last remaining major nuclear arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia. Now, that's not as big a deal as it might seem because it's been pretty apparent for the last year or two that Moscow hasn't been complying anyways. Uh, they, they'd already violated this, what they call the New Star Treaty, to cut long-range nuclear arms because they wouldn't allow on-site um, inspections. So it's pretty clear that I think probably about a year ago they decided they were going to start violating the treaty anyways. But also, Putin yesterday vowed to continue the military campaign in the Ukraine. So he said, okay, this is, he said, this is it. He blamed the West for provoking what he calls the special military operation in Ukraine and says essentially that, you know, we're, we are, we're here for the duration and we're, we're going to stay until we essentially win. For their part, Ukraine which has been, I think, extremely successful over the course of the last year in fighting back against the Russians. Ukraine is saying, okay, you know, this isn't going to end until we've got our tanks that are rolling into Red Square. So a year since Vladimir Putin ordered his forces to invade Ukraine, the war is far from over. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What is the end game? What is the, the end game here? Um, to the extent that things slowed down during the winter because of conditions and things like that, well, you know, winter is quickly coming to an end, and there's all sorts of thinking that, okay, this is going to be when the Russians launch another offensive. The United States and Germany have agreed to provide you know, these high-end military tanks, um, there's requests that are out there for fighter planes and things like that. How how does this end? Does it end? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. You know, for the longest time, we talked about sort of a, a diplomatic roadmap. And, you know, is there is there a chance that you could offer Putin something that's face-saving and they pull back? But a year into this, after Russia has, what, drafted 300,000 people and after how a lot of those people have, have been killed, is is there a diplomatic solution or is this just going to bog down? Is this going to be, I don't know, Vietnam, uh, what Vietnam was to the United States and what Vietnam was to France? Is this going to be another example of what Afghanistan was to Russia? Are we going to be locked in a status quo for the next X number of years? And if not, what's the off-ramp? How does this end?
a year in. 855-616-1620. I've got some theories, but I'd be interested in discussing with you what you think is going to happen and what you think needs to happen. 855-616-1620, which is the Old National Bank talk and text line. You know, it pains me to say that I, I agree with anything that I read in the, on the editorial page of the New York Times, but they have an editorial that, it, it, at least in some respects, makes a lot of sense to me. I, here, here's the bottom line. I think I do not think Vladimir Putin even considers any sort of diplomatic resolution of this until and unless he becomes convinced that he can't win. And right now, I don't think he's convinced that that he cannot win. I think he's probably frustrated and surprised that he hasn't been able to win. I'm sure he's unhappy that, I mean, domestically, you've had to, like, reinstitute the, the draft and you've had to commit all these resources. But at the end of the day, I think he still believes that the West is going to falter in its support for Ukraine and that at some point in time he will just be able to overwhelm Ukraine and as long as he believes that he's he has no incentive I think well I mean the incentive is you know you keep losing men and things like that but I don't think he cares about that at all so it, it seems to me that to the extent that there is a diplomatic solution that can be reached as long as Putin is in power um, it it it's it's a long ways off, and it's only if Putin becomes convinced that he cannot win, and we're not there because he is betting that he will be able to outlast the West, and by outlasting the West, then he believes he will be able to just steamroller Ukraine. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Gianni in Montello. Gianni, you're on WTMJ. Yes, Jeff. Good afternoon. A great topic. Hi. Hey, uh, there is no uh, political resolution to this until there is a coup in Russia or Putin steps down or uh, there is not. Point. This will go on for at least probably another year and more. And I, I really I hate to go here, but I think it begs the question, um, you know, 2020 hindsight is 2020. But maybe we should not have aided the Russians so much during the Second World War and, and for, uh, sending uh, during the Murmansk run. Maybe we could have uh, uh, let the Germans get deeper into Russia, and maybe we could have saved all of Europe instead of just half of Europe. So, but okay, thanks I'd, for I mean, I guess I, I you know, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert on World War II, but I, I do. I, I read a lot, and I read a lot of the history. I mean, I think, that, I mean, from the perspective of we wanted Russia as an ally in World War II because you have to keep in mind Hitler had pretty much taken over the entire continent. I, I think most people recognize that Hitler's big mistake was rather than concentrating on trying to destroy England, you know, after he had the Battle of Britain and all those sort of things, he launched, what was it, Operation Barbarossa and invaded Russia. And then, so he was now fighting a war on two fronts. And the invasion of Russia diverted a lot of German resources. Because keep in mind, Russia had a pact, uh, a non-aggression pact with Hitler. I mean, Stalin and Hitler had had a non-aggression pact that Hitler ended up violating. And, And the reason... The United States supported Russia is because we wanted Russia 
to keep Hitler occupied so it gave the United States and the Allies more time to build up forces and things like that. So Russia was a huge asset in World War II. If Russia had fallen quickly, I don't I don't know what would have happened because the United States really wasn't ready to get into the war in Europe in a big way until, I mean, a couple years later. At least that's kind of my take on history. Now, I guess the question becomes, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Patton, you know, George Patton was one of these people who recognized that we were going to have to fight the Russians one day, and he was he was just saying, okay, we're, we've got the troops, we're in Europe now, maybe now's the time to, to do this. And I, I don't know enough about that period to have a position, and I just think that, I, I guess, whether we should have done it or not, this is the world that we live in now. 855-616-1620. What is the end game here? Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yes, I first of all I like to say I feel sorry for the people in Iran or Ukraine and um, my look at it is if the United States keeps going the way we're going where we're just shipping money after money after money after money this country is going to be bankrupt we're going to lose our military we're going to lose our our weaponry system because we're giving it all to Ukraine and now we're giving them tanks. When is it going to be when this jerk in the office says, I'll give you my troops and let my troops go there? He's well, going to okay, well, thanks. well, thanks, Dave. I mean, look, I, I, I guess... I, you know, I, 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 so I just I find myself... I mean, I actually think, and I've said this before, I, I, I have been a harsh critic of Joe Biden on... Most of the ways he has handled the, the presidency, I think he's been fa- he's a failed president in many, many, many respects. I really will tell you the truth. I don't have too many issues personally with the way he's handled the war in Ukraine. I, I think he's um, led from the back. That is, he, he has he's you know worked with building coalitions with with NATO. He hasn't had the United States out in front on this. Now, I guess where I disagree with you is the fact that. Do I do I think by supporting the Ukrainians, do I think that we hurt our military? And I guess my answer to that is no. I, I just I don't think that's the, the case, especially since you have NATO itself that is committed. You have Germany that's provided tanks. You've got France that's providing resources. This isn't like the United States is going it alone. And I agree that you have these European nations that have more, quote-unquote, skin in the game, but the United States certainly has that there as well. I guess I don't – I think also Biden has been very, very careful, and that's the appropriate approach in my opinion to say okay look we're not going to put troops on the ground and that's i guess and the other thing i would say is what is the alternative is the alternative to simply say okay we're going to bail on this and we're going to pull out of ukraine and we're going to let russia and we're not going to cooperate with nato and we're going to let ukrainian people just be overcome and we're going to let an aggressor like vladimir putin win does that make the united states any safer and my argument would be it doesn't does that diminish nato it it does Uh, I I mean, Russia, not talking about the people, but the government, it is an evil empire. Ronald Reagan was absolutely right. And at least it's an evil empire as administered right now. So, I mean, to me, 
again, I go back to where I was in the beginning on this. I think the things that's got to happen if you're going to have a resolution of this is Putin has to be convinced that he cannot win, that this will be Afghanistan all over again. It'll be year after year of financially crippling warfare. Because, I mean, our caller Dave was talking about, well, you know, this is draining the United States resources. It's hurting Russia a lot more. That that's there's there's no question about that. So you've got that going on and you've always got the factor of, gee, if Putin is somehow replaced, you know, how long is Putin going to stay in power? And if Putin leaves power, whether he's deposed or whether he resigns or retires or passes away or whatever, you know, will somebody else come in and say, okay, maybe this is Putin's war. Maybe it's time to pull back on this. But short term, as long as Putin is in power, I don't think we have any choice to stay that course. And unfortunately, I think that's going to mean that, you know, what's been going on in Ukraine is going to continue to go on in Ukraine for at least the foreseeable future. It's really interesting. We were just swamped with texts about this. And I mean, I understand there's two schools of thought. Um, you know, one is like embodied in this text, Jeff. The United States and NATO strategy is to defeat Russia in Ukraine. The alternative is Russian expansion into Poland, Germany, and the Baltic company, countries. I think that's true. The flip side is a text I have. Jeff, this isn't hurt, hurting Russia anymore. They're selling their coal and oil to China, and Putin doesn't care how many body bags come home. I think it's very true that Putin doesn't care what the consequences are to his people. And, you know, now there's reports that, you know, China is thinking of meddling in this and maybe providing resources to Russia, uh, that's that would be a, a very dangerous escalation of this. I think you know everybody needs to be careful here because what you have is, I don't know, what you have is a conflict that's being fought in Ukraine, and I think you've got to be really careful to make sure that this doesn't turn into World War III. <laughs> So, very glad to have you with us. This is, of course, I'm not sure you can call it Fat Tuesday anymore, because as we were talking about yesterday, there is this huge push to eliminate the word fat because it it might be insulting to some people. This was the context of the the book uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and a couple of others written by Roald Dahl, who is the the, the British author, passed away in 1990. But the, the publisher is now redacting and editing new copies of those various books for to remove stuff that some people might find to be quote-unquote offensive. Like, for example, we, we no longer are allowed to use the phrase mothers and fathers, so you have to change it to parents because that might be insulting to um, non-traditional families. And the word ugly can't appear in the book The Witches because, well, somebody, it might be offensive to describe a, a witch as, as ugly. Or um, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, there's the one character who's just like that little fat kid who's like gobbling up all the candy and stuff like that. Well, in the book, they describe him as fat and enormous. Well, we took out the phrase fat because... Somebody might be offended by that. You just So I don't know what we do with Fat Tuesday, so maybe we just kind of call it, it Tuesday. But I know that there's all sorts of people out there that are eating the puchkis and things like that. So however you decide to celebrate the Tuesday of Mardi Gras, I hope you have fun. Okay, um, Nikki Haley, who has now announced that she is running for the Republican nomination for president, she came out the, the other day and said that she 
believes that one of the things that we should have is is cognitive tests for people over the age of 75 who want to run for office. And that generated a, a lot of response, including the uh, the bozo that still works for CNN, Don Lemon, who came out and said, well, I, I can't believe that she would say something like this. You know, it's, she, she's way past her prime. You know, Nikki Haley is, of course, 51 years old, and Lemon uh, actually has been spoken to it. That didn't go over very well, you know, and it's about as sexist as it can possibly get that, oh, you know, at 51, you know, women, just look it up. Women are, are past their prime at the age of 51, which would be news to a lot of the women I know, including my wife. But that's, of course, you know, how Don Lemon operates. Don Lemon operates. But but the question of cognitive testing is really interesting. Here Here is the, the deal. The idea comes from Japan, but it's being thought about in a number of states here. Uh, Going back about five years ago, Japan issued a nationwide policy that requires drivers 75 and older to take a cognitive impairment test. Now, I, I don't know what the test involves, but they have to, as a condition of renewing their driver's license, they have to take a cognitive impairment test. If they fail the cognitive impairment test, then what they have to do is they have to visit a physician before they're allowed to um, renew their license. And in six months after the policy was implemented, Physician tests showed that over 30,000 drivers had signs of dementia, over 30,000, and ultimately 674 had their licenses revoked. So just because you fail the, the cognitive test at the DMV or wherever doesn't mean that your license is going to be revoked, but it means you, you've got to get a, a medical examination to determine whether or not you have dementia or something like that. And out of, again, 30,000 drivers who had signs of dementia, ultimately 674 had their licenses revoked. Interestingly enough, crashes among drivers 75 and older had been increasing until the policy was instituted and after the policy, they dropped with about 3,600 fewer collisions than expected. Hmm. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, this is kind of a difficult topic for me to discuss because the truth is I'm closer to 75 than I am to 16. That's the reality. And my guess is maybe you are as well. And as we've talked about repeatedly on this program, having that driver's license is a sense of freedom. I was just talking about somebody to you know, somebody yesterday who remembers this topic we did last week or two weeks ago about, hey, do you remember when you first got your driver's license and that sense of freedom that you had in the car and stuff? Well, well, I remember that. So nobody likes the idea that, you know, you're going to lose your, your driver's license. At the same time, as we have talked about in different contexts, there's no question that as you age, your eyesight deteriorates, your hearing deteriorates. Um, cognitively, there is deterioration. In some people, it's more extreme than in others. But, for example, in Wisconsin, all you have to do is go in for a vision test. So you have that little vision test that they give you, and then uh, unless you hit and kill somebody, uh, effectively, you know, you've got a driver's license for eight years. 
Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, let's tee this up. Japan does this. Over the age of 75 or older, you've got to get a, a cognitive test. If you fail it, it's not that you can't renew your driver's license, but you've got to go see a doctor where that doctor makes a more complete evaluation to determine whether or not you should have a driver's license. Does something like this make sense, and would it work in the United States? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, that is a, an UCK forecast. There's no question about it. But again, I'm going to try to be the, the voice of sunshine and light here. Um, we, you always know in Wisconsin you're going to get some of that those, those winter storms and things like this. But it, it's now we're essentially at the end of February. So what, what typically happens is, yes, you get a storm like this, but then whatever snow we get ends up disappearing relatively quickly. You can get some storms like that in March, but it ends up disappearing relatively quickly. The long stretches of you know, polar vortex and 15 below zero and things like that, that tends not to happen once we get to this time of the year. Daylight saving time kicks in in about two and a half weeks. The daylight hours are getting longer. In general, there is light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to weather, and that light is not a train coming the other way. As you might expect, that last segment drew a huge response, and I was uh, going through some of the texts that came in um, over over the uh, uh, the the break. Um, Jeff, as your caller saying, older people aren't dangerous. I had an elderly relative that was driving, dozed off, ran a stop sign. Three people in their car are now dead, along with the person in the vehicle they hit. I had to take my license, my mom's license away. It's not an easy thing. Jeff, as a physician, I can tell you that not all families are capable of taking the keys away. Some assessment of physical and mental abilities is indicated for many adults. Jeff, my dad was a hardworking farmer, drove his entire life. We had to detach his battery, and the day he died, he had his keys in his pocket. Although he couldn't figure out why the vehicle wouldn't start, he was too proud to uh, give up the keys. Jeff, we just took the keys away from my friend's father. He had a second set and drove the next day. He's had multiple situations where he is unaware um, and worries it for 20 minutes or more. We're obviously concerned about him hurting himself, but additionally about hurting other drivers or children while unaware of his actions. Yeah, that's the, I mean, see, that, that's the thing that, that's out there. And I, I understand that some people say, well, how dare you? You talk about the government taking away people's keys. Well, if you can't see or you can't hear um, or you have, you know, problems with dementia, Yes. What, what's the choice? You're out on the roadways, you know, presenting a menace to people or alternatively, you take away the keys. I'm sorry. I vote for take away the keys before you hit and kill someone. That's just me. There is a case that's being argued in front of the United States Supreme Court today. We're not going to open up the phone lines on this because I, I just I, I don't I mean, look, you could go broke trying to figure out how the Supreme Court's going to rule on things. I, I don't think that they're going to change the law dramatically, but it is it's sort of it's sort of interesting. Here's here's what happens as a as a general rule. There, there's this there's a law on the books and it's known as Section 230. And it's been around for actually it predates the Internet. But what this what this law does 
is it gives Internet platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatever, legal immunity for almost all third-party content that is, is hosted on their sites. So in other words, if I, if I post something, let's say I post something on my Twitter account, and that thing that I post is, is libelous or slanderous or whatever, the way it works is that the person that I have defamed or libeled or slandered, they can sue me for what I have posted on my Twitter account, but they can't sue Twitter. Twitter is essentially immune to this. And the argument is that that Twitter, it's not reasonable to expect them to police and determine, you know, what's accurate and, and what's not accurate, you know, and what's defamatory and what's not defamatory. It's just because you've got millions and millions of people who are, are posting stuff on there uh, you can't hold the website liable for just being the source where somebody puts it up there. The person who makes the statement can be. All right, well, what, what this lawsuit is about, it, it says, well, that might be the case, but these websites use the, these algorithms where they try to direct you. You know, they, they look at stuff that you like, and then they try to direct you to other things that you that they think you might like. So th- this case comes, long story short, it's about um, a family of a, a woman, 23-year-old American student, who was killed in an ISIS attack in Paris in 2015. Their argument is that YouTube aided and abetted the terrorist groups because YouTube algorithms recommended ISIS videos to users and therefore helped spread the message. So in other words, they're saying, well, they wouldn't have, these terrorists wouldn't have necessarily found this stuff if it were not for YouTube. I think it's a tough argument to make. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But I do think Congress is going to take a hard look at this blanket immunity. And like I say, a lot of this law came before you had the explosion of social media to try to decide, you know, should there be some liability? For me, I again, I kind of think it's the buyer beware. I mean, it's, it's a situation, but the, the flip side is, if I come on the radio and I defame somebody or slander somebody and libel somebody, well, what's going to happen is I'm going to get sued and WTMJ is going to get sued. Our, our parent company is going to get sued. So there is some degree of liability. Now, the difference is the the company I work for, I, I'm paid by them. I'm hired by them. There is theoretically control that they, there's, not theoretically, there's control that they exert over me. So that's different than just some random person posting stuff on the internet. And of course, I mean, I don't know what the internet looks like if all of a sudden every post has to be reviewed by somebody at Google or Twitter or whatever to determine whether or not this is slanderous or libelous or whatever. It, it kind of, I think, defeats the whole purpose of the free exchange. So I, I don't think these people are going to win in the case. I, I don't. But I do think Congress is going to take a hard look at this Section 230 moving forward to figure out what the right result is. But if you're watching the network news tonight and you're hearing about this argument in YouTube and stuff in the Supreme Court, that's what it's all about. Right now, 
you know, are should the websites have just blanket immunity when people post stuff on them that might cause other people to act? Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. Spring training is here and baseball is back. Keep it tuned right here on WTMJ all spring long for Cactus League Baseball. All the sounds of Brewers baseball, including Bob Euchre on the call for some games all throughout the spring training season. Our first spring training broadcast is this Saturday at 2.10 p.m. It's spring training and it's back right here on the home of the Brewers, WTMJ. Boy, it's it, it's been a, a tough week or so for different types of celebrities. I mean, last week, at the end of the week, you had the story about how Raquel Welch, you know, passed away. Then on, on Saturday, I, I posted something on this on, on Twitter. Um, Stella Stevens, who, and you can follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 Stella Stevens, who was, I always thought, under very underappreciated as, as, an, as an actress. Um, she was another one of these actresses who kind of was, was, booked for her like sex appeal and stuff and she posed in playboy and things like that but actually i thought she was a much better actress than she ever got credit for um my favorite movie she played against type she played a nun in the the movie that the trouble with angels and i i thought she was was great in that and if you ever get a chance to watch it i i that's i really love that movie but she was in she played the the girlfriend of jerry lewis in the nutty professor she was in the poseidon adventure um, but she was always kind of remembered for posing in Playboy and things like that. And again, I thought she was always a very underrated actress. But she passed away at the age of 84. Since then, you've had um, Richard Belzer, who was the former stand-up comedian, who was, of course, best known for um, creating the detective character John Munch on Law & Order Special Victims Unit and a variety of other shows. He, he passed away at the age of 78. And then um, the news today, uh, Barbara Bosson, who uh, you, you might not recognize that name, but if you were, well, I, I think one of the best TV shows ever made was Hill Street Blues. And if, if there wasn't Hill Street Blues... There wouldn't have been, there, there wouldn't have been NYPD Blue. There wouldn't have been The Wire. There, there wouldn't have been. I, I don't think. I'm not sure there would have been Breaking Bad. I, I think when when you go to kind of this serialized drama series with kind of antiheroes and stuff. I mean, Hill Street Blues was really the the show I think that started it all, and a lot of other stuff you know flowed from there. She played. Um, Faye Ferrillo, if you remember Hill Street Blues, she was the wife of Daniel J. Traviante, who's from Kenosha. Um, she portrayed his, his ex-wife, I guess, for, for five years. She was married to Stephen Bochco, who was the producer of that. But, you know, I, she created, it was a great character, and she was very, very important in that ensemble role. Uh, the news is that she passed away at the age of 83, um, a day or so ago as well. So it's, again, it's been sort of a tough week for, like, actors and actresses, Raquel Welch, Stella Stevens, uh, Richard Belzer, uh, Barbara Bosson. And then, of course, there's the, the other report, Tom Sizemore, 
who um, he was hospitalized in extremely critical condition. He's probably best known. He was the the sergeant in the movie um, Saving Private Ryan. So just a, a great role that, that he played. He was in a lot of other stuff as well. So all these actors and actresses um, who are in different situations. And, of course, we're all you know monitoring the news about uh, former President Jimmy Carter, who's now in, in hospice care. Um, uh, Jimmy Carter, age of 98, um, oldest longest living president i i believe so um he's in hospice care and you you don't know how that's going to turn out as well but just um getting to that age where a lot of a lot of these going back to the entertainment world a lot of these entertainers whether it's movie stars or tv actors or musicians and stuff that were such an important part of lots of our lives during the 60s and the 70s and 80s they're just now getting to that point where time takes its toll and I guess my message to you know all the four that we just talked about is you know sail on sail on <laughs> That's, of course, Hill Street Blues. Uh, ran from, like, 81 till 87. And it's another one of those that I think, like a lot of TV shows, I, I think it, it, it maybe hung around for a year or two too long. That's one of my big beefs with TV shows, that they, they have a story to tell, and then they kind of tell all the stories, and then they start repeating those. But just, I mean, a, a groundbreaking television show, and a lot of the stuff that we've watched over the years, I don't think we would have seen if there wasn't that. And that's, of course, Barbara Boston, who played... Faye Ferrillo, the wife, the ex-wife of the main character, um, she passed away at the age of 83. Daniel uh, J. Travianti, who played Captain Frank Ferrillo, he's from Kenosha. He's he's still alive. He's 83 himself, um, but originally from from Kenosha, and I think he's clearly best known for that that role on on Hill Street Blues. Hey, Wisconsin, it might be cold out right now, but soon. It's going to be warming up, and you'll need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here with the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week, we're brought to you by Bruce's team. Bruce's team, taking seniors from overwhelmed to, hey, I can do this, for over 35 years. Visit their website at brucesteam.com or give them a call at 262-242-6177. It's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase right here on WT. M J. Uh, this is, of course, election day, and you know I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We've, we've talked a lot about this in, in the lead up to it. It is one of those uh, February primary is one of the the true like low turnout uh, elections, but it's one of those why it's so cool if you if you go out to vote because your vote matters statistically even more than it does in other cases because there's fewer people that vote and this is one of those elections where everybody in the state of wisconsin has at least one race that we can all vote on and that is the state supreme court primary you you've heard us about this before and you know we're, we're going to know how this all turns out 
by you know nine or ten o'clock tonight. But there are four candidates running. It is a nonpartisan primary. These are nonpartisan elections, but two are conservatives, two are liberals. The top two vote getters emerge. And then we'll meet in, in early April. I think it's what April fourth or something in the general election. It's important for the state supreme court because right now the ideological balance of the court: four conservatives, three liberals. A conservative justice is retiring. So if a liberal candidate emerges and wins, you're going to see a lot of changes. A lot of stuff is going to end up getting overturned as the left does. What they couldn't do at the ballot box uses the court to try to overturn stuff. The two liberals that are running are a Madison Circuit judge named Everett Mitchell, who's gotten almost no traction, and uh, I'm a very liberal Milwaukee County Circuit judge named Janet Protasewicz. And early on, the, the left nationally... And she gets a ton of money from California and New York. She's going to be the best Wisconsin state. If she wins, she'll be the best Wisconsin state Supreme Court justice that New York and California should could buy. She's getting a ton of money, and the smart money says she will emerge as one of the two. The two conservatives that are running are Jennifer Doro, Waukesha County Circuit Judge, and uh, Dan Kelly, former state Supreme Court justice who lost in 2020, who's running again. I've already made my predictions. I think it's going to be Doro and Protosewitz. But, you know, then then it's kind of like Katie bar the door as to who ends up getting elected in uh, the April election. I, I guess Kelly could pull it out. I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, we'll know by tomorrow. Bottom line is it's important. Get out and vote. Okay, I have to admit, one of my guilty pleasures... And it is a guilty pleasure. It is South Park. And I, I've been watching it from the beginning. And I, I admit that I, I that sometimes it, it's just kind of over the top. And I'm not I'm not one of these guys that goes back. And unlike Seinfeld, where I think you can watch the reruns over and over again, I'm not one of these guys that obsesses on it. But every once in a while, South Park just absolutely nails it. If you haven't seen South Park, it's, it's this sort of crudely drawn animated series. It's sort of like the Simpsons on Simpsons on crack is, is kind of how I would describe it. And, you know, they just, the, the guys that do it uh, just have no respect for anything. <laughs> they just don't. And they're just, they, they poke fun at everything. And, you know, political correctness is sort of one of those things. And I will admit, a lot of times I think the shows miss their mark or they, they might have kind of a funny premise and then they just don't go anywhere. But, but every once in a while, they nail it. And last last Wednesday night, um, they, they had an episode that if you haven't seen it, I, I encourage you to, to watch it because it's getting a lot of attention, and it just it's they, they nailed it in one. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I don't talk about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, his wife, very often because, well, eh, I, it's just, it doesn't matter to me. But, but the South Park episode really took a pretty good shot at them. I guess one of the things that's always struck me is, you know, you, you've got these people out there who, who decide in this world that they want to play the victim card. And Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have been playing the victim card in, in a big way. Oh, 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 poor me. You know, I, I was I was born into the royal family, for instance, and I was treated so poorly and things like that. I'm just, I'm not sympathetic. But what I'm particularly not sympathetic about is these people, 
you know, they, they complain about how badly they've been treated and they want their privacy and things like that. And they're, he, he's writing a book. And they're all over Netflix um, with documentary series. And my point is, you, you cannot have it, or you shouldn't be able to have it both ways. And that's what the South Park episode did. Um, what it did is it, it featured characters described as Canadian royalty, dubbed the prince and his wife. And um, the show called the wife character a sorority girl, actress, influencer, and victim. <laughs> Oops. And but the the funniest point in the show is there's one point in the episode where the, the the comic characters are making an appearance on a talk show called Good Morning Canada, and they walk in holding placards demanding privacy, and then they sit down to talk about the the new memoir. You know, and the host is going, "Well, okay, what do you mean you're you're demanding your your privacy? And here you are doing talk shows and promoting all this stuff. Anyhow, it's." It's really, really funny, and it's really, really spot on. And I'm thinking, huh, this is one where South Park nailed it in one. Okay, I am curious as to whether this would make a difference to you or not. The city of Milwaukee has parking meters, and the vast majority of the city of Milwaukee's parking meters, they've got about 6,200 parking meters throughout the city, and about two-thirds of them are in what you would describe as kind of the central business district. You know, the area, I, I don't know, from maybe the lake over to the Deer District, something like that. That might be an approximate thing, but you, you, you get the idea about this. Um, the parking meters, the way it works now is that, well, for example, they're, they're free uh, up to a certain point. Let me see. I've got the exact time right now. Business district motorists have to pay to park from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. After that, it's free. So you come down for dinner or a show or to go to a Bucks game, and if you're able to find a parking meter, it's free. You don't have to park. You don't have to pay to park. In addition, it's free on Saturdays as well. All right, there is a plan that is, I think, moving through the Common Council. Matter of fact, the committee approved it unanimously, which is going to change all that. Um, If the plan goes through, motorists would have to keep feeding the meters until 9 p.m. most nights and pay to park on Saturdays So, or risk getting, getting a ticket. So effectively, if you park at a meter to go to a ball game or something, well, the game's not going to end. I mean, I'm not sure you'd be able to pay enough to to park at that particular meter and and get out in time so you still had time on the meter. I'm I'm not sure that practically you could do this. But the idea is you'd have to pay to park on on Saturdays, and you'd have to pay to park till 9 p.m. at night, most nights. The city says, hey, if we do this, we think that we're going to be able to generate a ton of cash. We also think that finding a parking space might be easier, you know, because you wouldn't have people just, you know, putting their cars in the uh, parking spots and just leaving them there because people would have to come back and either move the cars or feed the meters or whatever. There's a number of downtown business people who are saying, look, um, this is bad because if we do this, it's going to stop people from going out. It's going to affect their decision-making if they know 
that they're going to have to pay to park after 6 p.m. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, I'm curious as to this. And and again, I'm, I'm not the best indicator of this because when I go downtown, given everything that goes on, on, on those occasions where I go downtown for social events or whatever, I'm almost always trying to find a secured parking structure that I'm going to be parking in. I mean, that's, that's just the, the reality, something that's got guards and things like that. I'm way past, like, just putting my car on the street, if at all possible. If I'm going to restaurants, I'm looking for places that have parking lots that are nearby or valet parking or something like that. So I'm... I'm not, admittedly, the best indicator to have this discussion. And, you know, whether you have to pay to park or it's free, that doesn't influence me. To me, it's more like, hey, is there going to be safe parking that I could get into? But some of these downtown businesses are saying if people now have to pay to park till 9 o'clock at night and pay on Saturdays, that's going to discourage people from coming down. I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure free parking at meters on either Saturdays or at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, I don't know that I think that that's going to be the deciding thing as to whether you're going to come down and have dinner downtown or go to a bar downtown. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, how important is free street parking to people patronizing the business district downtown in the evenings? Nobody's talking about you know, we're not talking about during the daytime hours. That's how the meters work. We're talking about you have to feed the meter till 9 o'clock and on Saturdays. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is really interesting. People all over their map on this. Right now, parking meters in, in downtown Milwaukee, the Central Business District, they cut off at 6 o'clock at night. You don't have to feed them um, after 6 o'clock, and you don't have to feed them on Saturdays. Common Council Committee unanimously decided to extend those hours till 9 o'clock on weeknights and then also make you pay on Saturdays. And we're talking about whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, let me just give you a share, shading of the text before we go to the calls. Uh, Jeff, it's not going to make a difference. Additionally, it's not the city's job to provide parking spots for businesses. Jeff, the city needs some help with revenue enhancement from the legislature. It's not a good idea, but the legislature is an example. Jeff, if they're going to charge for street parking at night, they better <coughs> improve policing to prevent break-ins. That's it. Jeff, free parking won't decide if I'm heading downtown, but it does make it more likely. Jeff, I've often taken advantage of free street parking near downtown on evenings and Saturdays. I won't go down there anymore, instead visiting the new suburban multi-use communities in Tosa, Brookfield, Oak Creek, etc. If I have to pay much for parking, I want to spend my money on entertainment and not um, parking. Okay, let's talk to John in Wauwatosa. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking my call. So I am 26 for context. Um, Not sure if that skews is a good thing or a bad thing for this specific subject matter. Um, I would say this would be a deterrent for me. Um, To give an example, I met up with a couple buddies of mine this past Friday who both live on the east side. I'm in Wauwatosa. um, And I drove down to 5th Street. We went to Fuel Cafe. Mm -hmm. I know there was a little bit of snow last week. But are you telling me now I would have to pay off hours for a metered parking spot 
that isn't even plowed out, it just doesn't make sense. If, if from a, I, I understand one of the texture's points about maybe we need more uh, funding for the city from the legislature, and in the meantime, they got to kind of cobble ways together to get some money. But I just this will actually deter me um, from going downtown. Is it going to prevent me? No, but it will deter me. Okay, interesting. I, I, w- I wonder how many people in your age group, I- instead of driving, you use Uber and Lyft now anyways, as opposed to driving their own cars. Yeah, I think some of that honestly has to do with plans for the evening. Um, at least speaking yeah. about my friend group, if they're going to make a plan to go to multiple bars or have a couple of drinks, they are going to take a, a, an assisted ride. Um, I'm pretty conservative. I'll have one drink, maybe two over the course of an evening, and then I won't even consider getting behind the wheel until a couple right. hours after um Interesting. so yeah for what it's worth no good i appreciate it. no john i appreciate the perspective and, and that's that's the balancing here's one of our textures uh jeff more important than the price of meter parking is the worry that your car might be stolen off the street we need to get a handle on that or nobody will come downtown for anything that's you know it, it's and again i maybe maybe i'm just in a different demographic as well but when i was looking at this topic to me, well, there is an inconvenience with with the the meters. I mean, I, I don't want I don't want to get a ticket. You know, I I don't want to get a ticket if if I run in to have a, a meal and the meal is going to take two hours and fifteen minutes. I, I don't want to I don't want to worry about having to that I'm going to end up getting that that ticket that's there. So I mean that that's definitely a concern. But I will be honest. I mean, my my bigger concern, and that's still with driving downtown now, is you know what's going to happen to my car. I mean, I, I I mean I insist. I will not, I, you know, maybe 15 years ago, I would just put the car, you know, oh, there's a parking space. I'm, I'm going to get it. I'm going to walk eight or ten blocks or whatever. I'm past that point right now. And so, I mean, candidly, when I go to, like, Bucks games or when I go to um, Marquette games, I'm parking in that structure, and I, I'm paying the 35 bucks. But I understand that not everybody is in that situation where they can afford to do that. Um, Jeff, this is the second coming of Chicago parking. Wait, you're going to see $24 an hour um, in no time. Um, Jeff, this is going to be one more expense people will not want to pay. They're already limiting what they do now, hence all the number of closed businesses and restaurants. Let's talk to Felix uh, in Milwaukee. Hi, Felix. You're on WTMJ. Hey, how are you doing out there? Good. What do you think? I- I worked downtown for 35 years. It's the worst decision they're making right now. As people have mentioned, the crime. People, I live in the on the border near Menominee Falls, and half of my neighbors say, you know, I'll tell them, oh, I was, went downtown today. You went downtown? <laughs> they don't want to go downtown. So the crooks are robbing you. Now the city's coming to rob us. Do you think, um, well, I guess, I mean, I, I don't, do, do you think, I guess that having to pay, you know, let, let's say you park at the parking meter and having to feed it for an extra couple hours, do you think that's going to be, whatever that might be, a couple bucks, do you really think that that's going to deter people from saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to go down and I'm going to go to the bars on Water Street or I'm going to go, you know, to the Deer District or something? you think that couple bucks is going to make the difference? Well, it's the inconvenience. Like I said, I used to work in downtown and people would come in asking for change. Not everybody had change. Like you said earlier, they'd be eating a meal, and then you got to walk four blocks to yeah. plug your meter. It's yeah. just not feasible, and it's an yeah. inconvenience. And especially women are at night; they don't want to walk after having a yeah. few drinks at a bar. 
in their high heels to go. And the first thing people would say to me, you know, we had a great time at your establishment, but we're not coming back. We'd rather go to the mall or something where we can park our car yeah. and not have to work and watch our clock, you know, yeah. because, no, oh, I got to no. get to the meeting. No, Felix, oh, hey, thanks for calling. Thing- Thank- no, no, I gotta, I'm sorry, i got to let you go because I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, that was an interesting call. I wish we could talk a little more, but I'm kind of up against the clock. And I do appreciate I do appreciate that perspective. And I'm one of these guys who, you know, right around Cathedral Square, they had these restaurants, and it was like an hour meter parking. But this is back in the day. And, and you couldn't get any of those restaurants in an hour. And they used to have the, the parking checkers who, I mean, they knew that. And they would just hover and they chicken hawk the parking meters. And, you know, even if you were running to, to, you know, feed the meter, boom, you'd still have a ticket. And I always thought that was so anti-business. I, I think this is one, before they do it, I think there needs to be a, a huge conversation about it. Now, again, like I say, for me, that's, to me, security is much more important than do I have to feed the meter. But you're hearing a lot of people saying, no, that, that meter parking is a big deal. 